Hello and welcome to Horus Heretics episode 8. I'm William. I'm Neil. And today we're discussing Fight of the Eisenstein part 2. Uh, it's by James Swallow and uh, we left you in the last episode uh, about halfway through the book and the decision had just been taken by Nathaniel Garrow to not kill his friend in a spaceship who appeared to be defying orders from on high and this all sort of led to a realisation that there was a betrayal going on by Horus and others and this is leading into the the scenes on Isfan um, where lots of people get killed. Yeah, uh, sounds sounds fair to me. Okay, so, so where this story has us on the Eisenstein, the ship that um, Garrow was sent to by um, his Primarch, Mortarion. Uh, and see, this initially confused me quite a bit because um, Typhon, I think, ensured that Grolgor was also sent to this ship. And the whole idea of what's going on at this point from the point of view of the, the traitor space marines is that they're sending all the all the elements of their uh, legions down to Istvan that they don't think will go for the heresy, basically, just so they can kill them all. Um, and Garrow seems to be very much in that category. And so I was like, why do, why do they put him in the ship? Because Typhon has this plan to for Grogor to take him out, basically. Or, yeah. Um, and I was like, what's that all about? But it's basically because it does mention at some point that Mortarion thought that Garrow could still be turned so he yeah yeah, yeah but yeah. but that was mentioned long after the fact so I don't know how yeah. you could have read the book and just been like this seems like a this is a ridiculous plan uh, but then later on it does it does sort of uh, retcon it almost and you're just like okay fair enough yeah that, that sort of makes sense to some degree because at first you're like what, what is this all about why would he you know send Grogor in this mission to kill Garrow when he could have just lumped him in with everyone else but I've done the unfortunate thing of making notes to myself that I no longer understand <laughs> uh, okay great uh, so I've got some pages here that I'm claiming there's very interesting stuff about nature of Astartes and heresy um, and interesting stuff about culture of remembrance don't know what I'm talking about there uh, um, no. pay, uh, pay. I, I didn't make any similar notes so I obviously didn't find them quite so, so interesting right. we'll skip right over that <laughs> Um, I just thought then, I just thought all that stuff about remembrance was very old hat. Uh, you, okay. you clearly are a little bit, you know, a little bit behind me on that. But you know, <laughs> we'll screw you up. So uh, anyway, so the next note I've got is that it becomes very clear that Garrow is becoming the first Astartes to properly worship the emperor, as we've seen uh, non-Astartes begin to do uh, in the other books. Well, he's the first one we are seeing described in the story, anyway. Uh, yeah, I think um, there was a bit um, before Caleb gets killed. Um, Caleb gets killed, everyone, by the way. Where Caleb and is it Voyan? I can't remember the 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 whole setup of the squad at this point. But Caleb gets sent back up to the deck, the command deck of the Eisenstein like get Garrow some shit is going down in the arming base and then Garrow goes down and sees Grilgor and his men loading up the virus bombs um, 
and, yeah. and <laughs> so they have the complete um, uh, benefit of surprise nobody knows they're there these tactical geniuses these these <laughs> warriors Garrow goes striding out into the open to confront Grilgore face to face and uh, there is a, a lot in this book of like that you know that stupid nobility you know that well I, I, I will first give him the chance to explain himself and you're like dude you know what's going on come on you don't need this <laughs> um, but yeah so they go down and confront Grilgore and Grilgore is like just like openly seditious there is no more uh, hiding of any kind and again the, the, there is a, a quote that I wrote down okay. and it's not it's not one of those quotes that um, like is, is this brilliant writing in this but it just it really harkens on a point that has been made before by Horace and by a few other people Grilgore says of the Emperor he has sold off our birthright to a council of fools and politicians, taken civilians <laughs> who have never known hardships or the kiss of war and made them lords and lawmakers in our steed. The emperor, he has no authority over us. Again, you know, again, it's the, the hatred of the... Fucking civil servants. The fucking man. civil servants. What, what have we done? What have we done? We're just trying to... We're just trying to buy staplers and stuff and, and make sure everybody's got enough printer paper. <laughs> that's, that's all we want to do. But, um, Rugal yeah, hates the, that. He hates it. Um, the scene you let just... Me, well, let, let me tell you, Grilgore will go to that printer and it'll be out of toner. <laughs> no, exactly. Fuck and then him. He'll be... <laughs> <laughs> um, Grilgore wanted to pit print off some like pictures he's found online of nasty chaos demons and stuff like that and then it's like nope so yeah no i think like the the the, the scenes you just described where they're fighting in the ship uh that's like the action generally speaking in this book is much more small scale in you know um between a few characters fighting and that's maybe why they go into more detail about what they're saying to each other as they fight rather than like you know in the other books we've had usually some pretty big large-scale war stuff yeah uh, where, where whole cultures get sort of <laughs> judged and, and put to the knife this is a room full of maybe seven or eight versus uh yeah 20 or something like that that being said there is a little section where this book does have a scene which is actually going down to the carnage on Istvan as the virus bombs get yeah. dropped and all that. A good one as and, well. uh, and I just got the sense this was entirely unnecessary, but <laughs> James James Swallow just wanted a pop it like he was like, That's some heavy that's some good carnage going on in Istvan. I want to write that. You know, I want to have a go at that. So Yeah. The in this scene, my boy Caleb, the house Carl, he gets killed with a big knife in the chest. And um I just noted it because, well, he will, he'll, I'll say he, he'll come up again, uh, even though he's dead. Uh, but he gets a, a big Astartes combat knife through the chest. The book says his lungs start to fill up with blood. But then he gives a very long and quite erudite speech about, <laughs> about, about the importance of Garrow and the emperor. And you just think for a man who's got a lung full of blood he's very very good like he's speaking through that quite well would that i could speak so eloquently with a space marine knife in my you know 
chest. Yeah, but you're not you're 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 not the equal of Caleb William. <laughs> That's true. The Emperor's light has yet to fill me. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, this is uh, this is up on the ship. Obviously, he dies. Um, not down in Istvan, where the book briefly turns to. Um, but yeah, at this point, I've got it noted that Decius has given off some serious chaos red flags around about Definitely. now. <laughs> There's a whole lot of like open mutiny. <laughs> Sorry, this is what he says. This is what I guess Decius says. You're right, though. Yeah, I think we'll get onto that. Uh, the various instances of open mutiny. Um, so the, Decius is looking down at the dying world of uh, Istvan, um, and Decius says Decius spoke in an odd whisper. It. It is incredible the power of such destruction. <laughs> <laughs> so there's there's a bit of conflict that goes on, not just amongst the space marines, but amongst the crew of the ship, um, the and pilots, I've, and yeah, so I on. find this very frustrating. There is a a vox operator who, in the end, is the source of giving them away, and he is clearly like he's openly saying to them, "I'm not on your side." He says it yeah. on like two different occasions, and they're like, "Oh, just shut up and do your job." Uh, <laughs> you know, we're we're taking part in this huge mutiny, essentially. But I know you're not with us. But you know, just just go along. And yeah, he, in that situation, you don't leave him as the person in charge of talking secretly <laughs> to another <laughs> ship. Um, <laughs> but oh, fuck it, because it's around this point where, like, I think I mentioned this the other day. It was if as if. James Swallow had like eaten a Patrick O'Brien book or something <laughs> when when this happens. Um, so the the communicator is doing just what you said, basically openly defying his superiors, and he's saying, "What you have done will cost you your rank." Hissed Mass in a sullen voice, "You are upon the verge of open mutiny uh, against the War Master's command." <laughs> this is so funny. Uh, get your terms straight, boy, retorted Karya. Mutiny is when the enlisted men take over a vessel. When the ship's master does it, it's called barratry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, that is one of the things I hate most in the world. It's like well, you're having a big, passionate conversation, and then some semantic prick just, just says, like, well, actually, it's... Frankenstein's monster. Frankenstein was the scientist. But like, even, everybody knows that. <laughs> Shut up. Even worse when it's done by a like military naval history oh, pedant. You know? Oh god, just like gives me the douche shivers. Oh. I just, I, I, yeah, that was just um, a bit about like. I don't think people know how much I know about na- the navy. I know a lot about the Navy. I'm gonna I'm gonna put something in there to let everyone know. know. I've read a lot of these historical fiction books about the British Navy and <laughs> it hasn't benefited me so far in life. So <laughs> this is this is the moment. There's well let's just say that it was a relief on page two hundred and twenty seven to be saved from such pedantry by the appearance the reappearance of Iacton Cruz. Oh boy. Um, and like, if you can punch the air while you're reading a book to yourself, then that's almost what I did here. Yeah, my note is, yeah, I act on fucking cruise. <laughs> <laughs> and I act on cruise generally. He has broadly the same personality as he always had. Like he, but more, um, more of it, <laughs> more of it. And he's more of a sort of badass now. You know, he was just like an irrelevant 
old guy made out to be in the previous books, and now he's like a proper grizzly veteran sort of thing. He is, but like it appears that he's known by a lot of different um, people, a lot of different legions. He seems known to Rogel Dorn, uh, the leader of the Imperial Fists, oh, who yeah. appears later on. Rogel Dorn is a dick to act on Cruise. <laughs> like, in the f- the first time he sees him, he basically just goes, "Oh yeah, and I I know you, and I know your senility, old man." And like, he said nothing. And Rogel, yeah, it's just like I act on Cruise is known across the entire galaxy as an old curmudgeon. <laughs> it just seems so funny that that's the thing that that has spread. He he's the most well known space marine, it seems. <laughs> and yeah, I think we'll get onto this, but it does now that you mention it, Rogel Dorn's defining characteristic just seems to be like rudeness, essentially. Yeah. Um so yeah, I act on Cruz is going around saying lad a lot to people. Oh my god, uh, like every line. Every line <laughs> it, it it either starts with I lad or something like that, or talks about <laughs> the old times or something. It really hammers home on his on his gimmick, I suppose. But he is a little bit different in this, as you say. He does seem more of a like a trained killer. But we also find out later on that Garrow says he's the same age as Ayakton Cruz. Does he? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's a whole conversation uh, between the two. This issue just confuses me it, more and more. It's it's nonsense. And I think <laughs> I think it's so much nonsense that at this point we have to we have to retcon it ourselves and just say <laughs> there is nothing to find here <laughs> it, it, okay. it's it's purely there is no answer there, is, there is no answer it's purely a, a a a fact that we've read what four books in a row all by different authors and they don't agree i think that's <laughs> it I, I, like there is a, a bit about the warp coming up and we've talked about this before uh, about the the seemingly before book one there seemed to be absolutely no knowledge of the warp in this book there seems to be quite a decent bit of knowledge about the warp. turns out there's quite yeah yeah i think we just have to sort of scratch it off as like yeah it's incoherent that's exactly what it is anyway like when cruz comes into the story he's talking with garrow Uh, there's an absolute belter of a line when cruz is chatting to garrow and i so much wanted to tell you this last week when you were here but i was like really have to save it for the podcast okay right <laughs> so so um cruz hovered at his side the side of garrow says do you plan have a plan of action lad and hacker who's you know is meant to be a sort of older one of the death guards he says we fight our way we fight our way out um push through and go go to the warp cruz says huh blunt and direct how very like a death guard <laughs> hacker eyed the luna wolf I've often heard the same said of your legion. The old Astartes nodded. That's true enough. The humours of our brotherhoods, brotherhoods do find themselves in lockstep. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, the humours again. Uh. Humours in lockstep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Another another perfect mixed metaphor there. Thank you. Um, okay. Typhon is kind of brooding that um, he is angry that he's actually... The furthest along the path of betrayal and of development in chaos. Yeah, this was interesting. Yeah, and he, um, like, in this bit, he he sort of 
shows that he is not the person that we thought he was in the last half of this book. We thought he was just like um, the first captain. He is uh, accepting of his place beneath the Primarch. And he's a bit of a, you know, one of those people who are just delighted to abase themselves in front of their Primarch. But Typhon is not. He's like, I, I'm actually further along in chaos. I'm bringing my Primarch with me. And I hate the fact that I have to play the good first captain when, in fact, I stand above the Primarchs. Yeah. And yeah. you find out at this point that he's sent Grulgore over and he doesn't give a shit about Grulgore. Like in the previous half of the book, they acted as like real close friends. And that itself was just another act, another part of the plan that Typhon is, uh, is enacting. And uh, that's the bit I mentioned earlier on that I thought was really interesting. And unlike what happens in the, uh, the rest of the books that we've read, actually, is that he's, he's just out for himself. He's already given up the idea of Primarchs and the, the set hierarchy. Um, and I like that bit a lot. Yeah, he's sort of seen a separate hierarchy of uh, devotion to chaos, gods, whatever. Certainly. Um, I've just got a wee note from around about this point where Karya, who's the captain of the Eisenstein, says, was a little surprised to find a line Astartes with a basic grasp of astrogation. <laughs> <laughs> and it just made me think, like... It's a good made-up word. <laughs> it's, it's, um, but, but, right, the astrogation is like finding their way around space through the warp, right? Or something. It's really... It comes up multiple times in these books, but it really is shocking the lack of curiosity that it's <laughs> <laughs> just like these guys who like fly about in space going into wars the whole time and like this captain is shocked that one of them has a basic grasp of like one of the basic disciplines that is required to allow them to do that yeah um, I, I think it like has huge knock-on effects for how we see these people because they're always giving orders on the ship and you can just imagine all these like crew surfs just going oh what you know like when, <laughs> yeah. you know when somebody yeah. says something so <laughs> so stupid that you're just like you're not you're not even in the right ballpark you know and it's it's difficult to formulate a response to just to that way you're just like yeah um okay that's a different <laughs> thing <laughs> what you're talking about there is the engines. We're talking about navigation, which is a very different thing. Um, and I, th I'd like to think we'll we'll bring that up again in future books. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> this is where this Mass is... betrays the Eisenstein. Right. Yes. He he, he sends a message to Typhon's uh, Vox person and says basically. Everyone over here has betrayed their orders from Typhon and um, they didn't shoot any of the virus bombs and Grulgore hasn't been heard from for some time. And yeah. uh, Typhon's like, oh, we've been betrayed. Let's go and destroy this ship. This is also around about the point where there was a significant moment for me because I found out about what is up to this point my favourite character in these books even though he's a very minor character interesting, go ahead 
And the character I'm talking about is Severnaya the Navigator. Um, really? <laughs> and here's why, right? So they're talking, so they're they're planning, they're sort of jumping to the warp and stuff. And um, so they're saying, get get below and alert the esteemed Severnaya to prepare himself for the jump. I want him ready to go. And Karya the captain saw the question in Gar- Garo's look. Um, and, he's, and he says, Severnaya, the, the navigator, he explained, pointing at the deck, two tiers below us. Spends his days meditating inside a null G sphere. I'll warrant he doesn't have the slightest idea what's going on up here. He lives only for the thrill of the jump, you see. <laughs> which which reminded me, I don't know if it reminded you, but it reminded me <laughs> of uh, the line in Point Break. Yes, where, uh, Anthony <laughs> <laughs> where, where um where Patrick Swayze says they only live to get radical <laughs> I just love this idea of this guy it's just like operating this totally different level um like but, flying into the warp doesn't give a shit what's going on in the rest of the ship just wants to get the thrill of that warp jump uh I, d- I, I think we need to give a little bit more airtime to the line from point break <laughs> because that that's one of the best lines in in cinema. <laughs> Isn't that when is it Patrick Swayze is talking to is it Keanu Reeves? I think so. And he's just like he, he's just they're just walking down by the beach and he's pointing out different surfing groups and different and he's <laughs> judging them all like he's being real judging and he's just like and that lot over there like they're kind of scumbags. They just live to get radical. <laughs> just like w- w- oh, that sounds really just fine. That's I mean, a, I thought there was kind of a, kind of a note of admiration. I mean, it's a long time since I've seen the film, but I thought maybe he thought, you know, those guys maybe take it a bit too far, but you've got to admire their commitment to getting radical. You know, I thought there was an element of that. I, I think m- maybe a little bit, but the primary <laughs> prime, primary uh, emotion behind it all was, was judginess. Severnaya, the navigator, is like has that. a similar yeah. uh, motivation in getting up in the morning. Um, so, yeah, he was cool. Um, there's a big big bit then um, which basically read like master and commander in space which was them trying to um, slingshot around the moon and trying to keep away from the broadsides and the pry weapons of and it was all it was very uh, lugubrious it was very trudgy I Uh, actually quite liked that bit did you? oh I was I was glad to be out of it because like I just thought it was a nice change of pace from the action in this book is usually just enemies getting pulped uh, by guns or swords or whatever. And this was like creating a bit of excitement and action out of a sort of chase of spaceships. And I kind of enjoyed it oh, a bit. It was, very, it was very traditional in that sort of naval warfare type thing. It was, you know, one heavily out, outmanned, outgunned ship trying to use its nibbleness to keep away from the heavy weapons of the other I just didn't think it was there was any excitement at all. In the end they get away, they get a bit shot up and they make it to the warp point and into the warp they go and that's when it all really kicks off that's when it turns really brilliant <laughs> like I think it was really good when they got into the warp. And it's around about this point um, where another instance of we've we've mentioned there's quite a lot of sort of moaning from either space marines or others that aren't happy with the way things are going, and Decius, as we've mentioned, he's showing some real chaos signs, and he's grumbling 
which he says he grumbled uh, about the plan the, that Garrow is following, basically. Garrow's been kind of just like, mostly just not saying much about that, but he sort of reacts here. <laughs> I just thought it was a funny line. He says, hey, Garrow turned on him and his face hardened. Brother, I have reached my bounds with your doleful conduct. <laughs> <laughs> Which doleful conduct was it? Yeah. Doleful conduct. That is fantastic. <laughs> I, honestly, that's good writing. <laughs> that, good for them. Now, I've got quote after quote in this section coming up. Okay. Basically, in the warp, their um, their warp protection fields don't work quite well enough or something. And some of the demons of the warp get into... The, uh, the ship and just start turning into flesh monsters. They reanimate Garo, or excuse me, uh, Grulgor and Caleb and um, everyone. It's basically a fight between these monsters and Garo. And one of the lines is in, in that battle. There's a quote, Garo stamped the last of the creatures to death and scraped the remains from his boot. I was like, this is exactly what I want. This is perfect. <laughs> and like, there were, there were 10, 11 of those that I could have picked out. It's a really, really good representation of like the weirdness of the warp. But then there was a line talking about the warp itself getting into the ship. And it said, it reached inside through gaps in causality. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> I was like, no, <laughs> no, no, you that don't. Was a good <laughs> that, Obviously, and I, I have, I don't know the writing process to it, but I have no doubt in saying that the author just went, "That's a, that's a sciencey word." I'll use that. <laughs> but just to like to describe the undescribable weirdness of the warp, their their approach is just to like melt the English language. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, God, it reached inside through gaps in causality. That's that's inappropriate. <laughs> it's just, I hate that. I. That the previous quote I gave you is exactly the kind of use of English language that I like and want. This <laughs> is appalling. You don't need to do that. It, it, but this is this is where I just wanted to bring up that the the knowledge of the warp is bullshit. Like it it, it says that people had uh, like hypothesized that there was actually there may actually be an intelligence side in the warp. I was like, no, no, they didn't. Because we've read about it, and you guys know nothing about it. And this is just my... This is the last time I'm going to bring it up, because, honestly, I think we just need to say they're retconning it, or they there's just a complete in incoherence in this part, and we just have to accept that, I think. But, um, quote time again, a good, good one. A good one. Because I love this bit. I don't want to be... I don't want to leave it on that uh, negative... Uh, bit. Another quote. A ragged scarecrow of skin and bone flung itself to the deck and mewed fly-blown <laughs> pustules, parking a face eaten away by leprous cancers. <laughs> That's nasty. There's a lot of adjectives in that line. <laughs> another quote. This, you got another one? I've got Let's another one. This is, Fire them out. this is really weird. It's just like it's a just an unusual use of vocabulary, I think. Uh, it's from Garrow. He says, "Be gone, you stinking freak!" 
I don't know why that's so funny. <laughs> I know. The word freak <laughs> just seems so unusual. It just It's a weird <laughs> word to use uh, in these yeah. sort of faux medieval nonsense. But yeah, but it's somehow, because it's the juxtaposition is so unusual, it works so well. Be gone, you stinking freak. <laughs> <laughs> and his, pro- his problem is that the freak is stinking. <laughs> like... <laughs> it's, it's your smell it's your smell that really is the worst thing about you <laughs> I'm glad you've got a few quotes in this bit because I just kind of in my notes I largely skipped it over uh, so I'm glad you're filling this out with some yeah, stuff you, you were clearly just so taken by the, the boring ship manoeuvring <laughs> I'm like oh let's get past this and let's get to the stinking freaks <laughs> So round about this point, I've got a note um, that goes back to an issue that, again, we've discussed before, where um, I think Cruz and Garrow are talking about the situation with the heresy, and they're basically saying that they trust the likes of Loken and Tarvitz to resist the heresy, uh, which kind of implies that, basically, they think that a vast proportion of space marines are susceptible to it quite easily. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, um, like, oh, we know there's a few good ones, but all these other guys we've been fighting alongside for thousands of, well, whatever, hundreds, tens of years, we could see them going for it in a big way, you know? Yeah, um, it seems to be. It seems to be. Uh, uh, another thing... We've touched on this a little bit, I think. Or James Swallow is quite fond of the old. On ancient Earth, there had been a philosopher who said, "Oh uh, God, I, 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 I wrote this down. Uh, I, there are a few occasions in the book where he does this, but there was one that really made me feel sick. But uh, sorry, <laughs> I'll let you. I'll let you go ahead. No, no, no. I just was raising that as a general. Oh, right, thing. No, what's, the, what's your example? Um, when they're going into the warp. He talks about um, that there was an old Earth philosopher who, in his writing, talked about the abyss. And when oh, you, yeah, and yeah. when you go into the abyss and when you stare into it, the abyss stares back. And it's everyone knows that line, and yeah. he completely messes up like the scansion of it, and it is so cumbersome and really oh it's just bad it's just bad i wish i'd written it down um i've got it here oh, okay um, can you read it out yeah on ancient earth there had once been a philosopher who warned that if a man were to look into an abyss then he should know that the abyss would also look into the man oh, it's just like it just ruins that, that, it, that it does kind line. of ruin ruin the poetry of it and what's all but it's also kind of brilliant in a black library way because like obviously that line is about like the darkness of the human yeah. soul and here it's about a literal abyss fucking <laughs> 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 demons come out <laughs> yeah, yeah what what Nietzsche didn't understand was that there are real abysses <laughs> and those abysses have eyes <laughs> and they're not normalised they're soul eyes <laughs> God, you're you're right. You're right. I I sort of skipped over that, uh, but yeah, that's the whole point of that is that 
It's li- everything in these books is literal. <laughs> like everything. There, there was a a part I read in a book. I, it may not even have been a Horus Heresy book. I think it was just a a forty k book. One of the first things I read, um, in said in this universe, and it was about the Mechanicum, and these. Um, I think it was a Titan or something with a machine spirit, and at that point I'd never heard what a machine spirit is. And the the Mechanicum have all these priests who are basically engineers. And at the same time as doing engineering, they say prayers at the same time because they think that their machine has machine spirit in it. And I thought, oh, that's a really interesting idea of, you know, people doing this fine engineering work, but have also melded it with um, religion and all of this extra, you know, pseudo stuff on top. And I just thought that would be really fascinating to know more about until straight away you find out, no, they do have machine spirits. The machine spirits are absolutely real. The prayers that the engineers say are part of engineering. And you're like, oh, okay. So it's it's literally true. And that's just a little bit less interesting. But that's, well, that's yeah, that's these books in, in a potted history, basically. Well, Neil, there's a whole book we're going to be reading in a few months time called Mechanicum Superb. in the series so, so I'm sure we'll get the chance to learn more about machine spirits so story wise where are we so they they go about in the warp they have problems with people getting reanimated as chaos they have beasts. problems with it <laughs> problems a few issues a few, <laughs> few issues which they iron out <laughs> and then, and then, they uh, they have to drop out and uh, they there's a sort of MacGuffin where they eject the warp core and explode it and that creates a huge beacon that other people can will see yeah. through the warp and there's a lot of disagreement about doing that decius oh we should say that in in the warp decius gets uh he gets stabbed with uh, a chaos knife yeah. and uh lots of i'm sure i'm sure he'll be fine i'm sure he'll i'm sure he'll be absolutely fine um <laughs> he felt the um uh, the pestilence from the from the knife wound and he goes you don't get me cuts off his own arm good scene yeah. uh doesn't work he, he falls ill and he gets taken to the medicaid Imp- probably nothing to worry about though a couple of weeks in a hospital bed well that's the thing with these right right. that's the thing with these books maybe that happens and you never hear from the character again so uh we'll see but they drop out of the warp destroy their warp engine and are found by this unknown group with a big flying castle. <laughs> yeah. I, I was going to start speaking about that, and I was like, no, you've got it. That's it. That's it. <laughs> it's a ship that's a, it's a flying castle with engines. A very large flying castle. It ver- it's huge. Um, and <laughs> don't think we need to go any further into it. <laughs> that's the job and who's in this ship who comes down into the imperial fists with rogaldorn what what is rogaldorn's gimmick well so he's the primarch of the imperial fists correct correct um and their thing is like siege defenses yep isn't it like so they know how to like defend somewhere against De- sieges very effectively. Exactly. And they they represent this in their uh in their physical 
sort of demeanor by being very stoic. And that's a word you may have heard us say about kind of every space um, marine before. And that's true. But these ones are very, very stoic. And that's kind of their thing. Yeah, I'm sure there's lines about, you know, them having the demeanor of the defenses that they they oh, build, yeah. you know, and stuff like that. Face like a wall or something like that. <laughs> um, they are called by some the stone men, which is bad, <laughs> a bad description of anyone. But in terms of the Primarch himself, he represents it through rudeness. Um, and he, I can't remember how this all plays out exactly, but Garrow tells him about what's been going on. Yeah, I thought this this bit was actually really good. I was expecting um, the author to get through this bit by just saying, and then Garrow told Rugaldorn about the betrayal. Yeah. Start a new chapter about a, a year later or something like that. But no, it, it, they spend a lot of time on the description of the betrayal and the heresy. And, and the difficulty how Garo has in sort of explaining the enormity of this. Yeah, yeah, and and on Dorn's part of accepting it. Dorn loves his brothers, clearly, and like flies into a rage when he hears them being sort of spoken down like this. And Garo clearly through all the hardships that he went through and losing his legion and losing uh, his friends and losing his Primarch. He gave up all of that and he never expected to like, have to argue the fact that this is true. And he just assumed people would believe him. And uh, yeah. it's, re- it's a really good scene. And it's uh, like one of the really good scenes that doesn't involve like killing. Rogodorn punches Garrow in the face at one point. Yeah. Uh, and um, it all comes to a head when um, Keeler, Mercedes, and Cinderman somehow make their way in, and uh, Mercedes like plugs in a USB cable to her head and outputs some video from her remembrances, and basically oh, yeah. proves proves to everyone watching that what they've said so far is true. I thought around about this time. Um, there's a bit where I, I just kind of reinforced that Garrow is a fairly likable character because he's he sort of is getting upset when he's talking to Acton Cruz that he doesn't want to lose. He's, he's worried about Decius lying in the sick bay or whatever, and um, he just doesn't want to lose any more of the the men in his charge to well death or, or yeah. Or th- there's quite a good good line where he says he's lost his Primarch, he's lost his legion. But not my men. I don't want to lose any more of mine. And uh, yeah. yeah, it's quite good. Um, so there's a round about this point where I'm thinking, right, it's about 60 pages left. The story seems to be finished, uh, but there's a space marine in a hospital bed full of like chaos yeah. diseases. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and your suspicions prove to be correct. Uh, because he turns into well, they go to um, the moon, Luna, yeah, and uh, whole... there there is a whole bit about that, but it really doesn't go anywhere. It's uh, the 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 remaining Death Guard um, and the humans 
go to Luna because they are still not really trusted. Uh, and so there's a few more questions that need to be asked of them. They go, yeah, and uh, sorry, just before ahead. we get onto that, I think it's like the. So that's one part of the response of Rogel Dorn to the news. And the other, which is only mentioned and then it's not dealt with in this book, is that he sends a force oh, yeah. directly to yeah. Istvan. I, I don't understand this bit. Maybe if you can. Uh, what what they were meant to do I've got no I, idea I, I assume he was just trying to like send some people there as quickly as possible to try and save the situation somehow you know if there were people if there were loyal space marines or whatever to be reinforced to just try and do something about that or maybe just yeah. in his anger he was like I want to but he sent he, yeah he sent Sigismund with some ships uh, to Istvan and He's like he, he literally says to Sigismund, "Tell Horus that his brother Rogel will see him punished, or something like that." Right. And but he sent Sigismund with a few ships of one legion to a place where there are what four or five traitor legions. Yeah. All of them, and what he sent them with a message, and he thinks that's a good. Like, I, I don't know. I, I guess we'll find out. Probably. I guess we'll find out. I get, yeah, that's probably the next thing that, that's coming up. But, yeah, anyway, so they're on the moon. Uh, there's a lot of chit-chatting about finding a new purpose and um, what they're going to do in the future, blah, blah, blah. Uh, they go to visit Decius, and he bursts into some flies. <coughs> But yeah, just before we, this is, and that sort of leads to the climactic scenes of the book. But the point of them going to the moon is, Rogel Dorns obviously believed the message to a large extent, but they're suspicious, just broadly speaking, suspicion about Garrow and the sort of religious stuff him and others are coming out with, and more specifically about Keeler and any sort of warp powers they suspect she oh, might yeah. have. So the reason, one of the reasons they've gone to the moon is that they can be kind of watched over by the Sisters of Silence, Silent Sisters. I can never remember which of those it is, but the, the characters we encountered earlier in the book. And they've got a sort of fortress Good point. on the moon. And they're kept there. And there's also, on the ship, they'd been kind of watched over by Imperial Fist Marines who were like, they weren't technically in prison, but they kind of felt that they were being, you know, kept yeah. prisoner kind of and it's sort of the same situation once again you've proven yourself to be uh, the person interested in these bits that I thought were really boring <laughs> and, and me I'm just like there's a there's a man who bursts into flies let's get to that bit <laughs> okay. so well, uh, just just say what you need to say whenever <laughs> we're going to talk about the fly man uh, just just give me the nod and I'll I'll break in <laughs> okay right <laughs> I thought in a way this was a quite quite a nice um, the description of the moon was quite a nice piece of um, uh, black library literalism oh, right so really I, I completely I, I can't even remember reading it <laughs> well no just just that obviously in Star Wars we have a space station that's the size of a small moon yeah and in Horus Heresy we have the entire actual moon yeah. is a space station. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> like it's like a military complex with like holes drilled all through it, and it's it's the, at one point it says it's also as well as being a kind of space station, it doubles up 
and a military complex it's effectively a weapon as well like it has so many guns on it and stuff like this but anyway that's where they are but other than that it's the moon as we know <laughs> yeah i think we need to if we need to reinforce that it's the moon everyone <laughs> um, but they don't call it the moon they call it luna because right yeah. yeah um so uh, uh, okay fly demon wants oh to yeah <laughs> well the thing is like i don't have an awful lot to say about this battle i didn't think it was that good um no decius sort of gives up uh on his tortuous life and willingly turns to chaos and is like remade anew into the lord of the flies um and that's it he uh, is fine he kills a few folks uh, Garrow comes and they have a battle on the surface of the moon. That sounds like yeah. it could be good. I maybe I was just ready for the end of this before three or four chapters before it came. Like I said, I think effectively the end of this, really in terms of its significance to the overall story, was mostly about sixty pages ago. Yeah, yeah, totally. Once the, the Imperial fists had picked them up and decided to go to Earth and sent a force away to to Istvan, but this was just kind of tying up the story of this book itself with Decius you know which has been heavily foreshadowed but uh, yeah so like did you want to I don't know if you wrote down any quotes uh, I didn't um, in the end it's a, a bit of a fist fight and he wins on the surface of the moon and then there is a bit of sort of nudge nudge wink wink between Garo Malkador, the Sigilite, he is the sort of emperor's representative, almost. Uh, one of the Sisters of Silence, and who else? Is, I'm missing somebody there, aren't I? Can't remember. Yeah, this was a kind of like Avengers Assemble sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, who is the other one that I'm... Gar yeah. Oh, Cruz, Cruz. I act on Cruz. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And Malkador sort of brings them all together and says... We clearly need some new superhero group, basically. <laughs> um, all of you need to have inquisitive minds, eh? Eh? <laughs> uh, basically, he talks about setting up the Inquisition. People who are dedicated to investigating uh, spies within the Imperium so that they're never surprised by uh, sedition or Xenos or chaos spawn again this this was especially like a sort of avengers assemble moment because it was a kind of postscript it was almost like one of those marvel post-credit yeah it felt <laughs> really like that and um, setting up something in the future i don't know what it's yeah. setting up but um yeah it really felt like that to the point where i'm so bored with that in those movies it's probably not this book's fault but it just felt so much like that that i'm like yeah. Yeah, just this. It's either in the book or it's not. Yeah, I mean the real the real climax of the story was was after the fight on the moon. Um, so so initially it was a fight where Decius in his monster form was fighting loads of space marines. Then they jump through a window or something out of the tower fortress thing they're in onto the surface of the moon, and then they have a one on one fight out there. And when he when he eventually kills Decius. The, the earth is sort of rising on the moon's horizon he knows the emperor's there and he has this real moment of religious 
kind of like he's already essentially signed up to yeah i thought been the emperor but this was kind of like the moment where it sort of all came together for him or something yeah Um, yeah no i think i think we're done pretty much yeah there was one thing i wanted to bring up uh, about this book on the whole i thought it's 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 high points were really high and uh, its low points weren't all that low but there was there was a bit of sort of dead air in there there was a bit of uh, stuff that i just had to trudge through but on the whole quite good but it's i I felt it quite a conservative book like Mm -hmm. it's um in the previous books they they touch on a lot of the same areas but they haven't really taken a standpoint on anything it was almost just like they describe these things without any authorial position being taken um but in this book the they they literally call garrow a conservative man <laughs> like he, he's uh like the the monsters say oh you're so conservative garrow uh and garrow just says yeah but you're you're real rebellious you, and you're monsters coming <laughs> <laughs> so yeah like the pe- the people in rebellion turn into literal horned monsters and the conservative status quo people are very much the heroes but it's, it's but i mean yeah like it is important to define how you're using the term conservative there because in a way to me it was slightly more radical than the earlier books because it actually presented a character who was like we've we've sort of joked about Woken being a centrist before because he sort of gets that there's bad stuff going on but he sort of can't bring himself to do anything yeah actually about it but like i thought garrow was kind of more radical in the except in the sense that he pretty quickly throws himself into worship of the emperor i think there yeah and that's the you're talking about conservative conservatism in the sense that the chaos characters in this book use it, where they sort of say, you know, we're we're breaking new ground by allowing ourselves to, you know, become mutated and yeah. become superior. Whereas Garrow's like um, going completely the other way. Basically, that's the the story of this whole thing is that <clears throat> the status quo is tearing apart in two directions. It's going uh, towards full on heresy against the empire, led by Horus and supported by chaos and then in the other direction there's this movement of the like tissue of divinitatis and so forth to um move towards actually worshiping the emperor as a god and thus throwing away their sort of secular ideology that they talk about a lot in the first three books but the 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 difference between secular ideology of the imperial truth and the religious adherence to the divinity of the emperor is very little. Yeah, in, in effect, in the effect of like the experience of people's lives within the empire, yeah. doesn't cha- wouldn't wouldn't change very much. It's like just pushing it to its logical conclusion. Essentially, you know, it's like the way they talk about an emperor, even when they hate religion, is still pretty much religious. And it's like these these people that are starting to worship him or just taking the next short step towards actually thinking he's a god yeah yeah it's just i I don't 
think I would really have even brought that up if not for, you know, those kind of alt-right depictions of Donald Trump as the emperor, you know, like, um, I don't think I would have had really any problem with it if I didn't know that there were some horrible people that seemed yeah. to be honestly <clears throat> affected in that way. Yeah, but I, I'm just... not even sure that's that's true to say that, but... Yeah, I mean, I've got to say, like, my reading of this book, <clears throat> I couldn't really relate it to any real-world conservatism. No. But yeah, it's, it's interesting that some people... Obviously, not necessarily in relation to this book, but just the white, the wider fiction, have done so. Um, however much that might have originated as in a stupid, internety joke manner, you know, it has been done by people on yeah on the far right in America and well, presumably elsewhere as well. But well, that's all I really wanted to bring up about the book. Happy that it's over, <laughs> to be honest. Um, looking forward to moving on to the next one which is do you know what the next one is yeah because i have it i found my old copy from when i originally read this book and it's uh fulgrim and it's graham mcneil again who wrote false gods um, oh did we like that one can't remember <laughs> for me i think we we had something we liked in all of them but i think generally we've found i certainly have found three and four more enjoyable than one and two definitely but uh, this was uh graham mcneil's last effort was two is that right Yes, too. Yeah, Pilgrim's the Emperor's Children, isn't he? A whole book about the Emperor's Children. Oh, cool. Well, maybe we'll have some feasting. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. <laughs> that'll, that'll I hope that good. gets elaborated on. But at this point, I think we brought it up earlier in this episode um, that I was just up visiting with Will uh, a week ago, and we recorded uh, a bonus episode where where we um, wrote some our own versions of a of a black library story um, we planned one anyway we planned one out it's a very very solid skeleton of a story <laughs> uh it, it started out like oh it might just be fun and then almost immediately we were like no this is very good <laughs> <laughs> um so um i have yet to listen through all of the audio i don't know if you have will we were getting drunker yeah. and drunker as we did it so we'll see if it holds up but yeah i mean like yeah <laughs> so there may not be a bonus <laughs> exactly exactly you know when like you you think you're having just the the best ideas when drunk and <laughs> the next morning you're just like oh boy oh that's that's shocking um well i, d- maybe I did the listen kids. i did listen to like just the first little bit of it and um there were some things that we were coming up with were a bit funny, but I think we were probably laughing more loudly and long at it than we would. <laughs> oh no, because that's the worst thing when people laugh at jokes that aren't funny. Oh god. <laughs> well, I think we've committed ourselves to releasing it. So okay. um, something. If it's Release not funny, apologies. I think yeah. I think there must be something in there. There's a story yeah. I want to write in there. I think that the story, honestly, I would love to write, um, yeah. but. Um, Anyway, that will be released next Monday, so it's not in place of a normal episode. Uh, I'll edit that up and get it up. Uh, so let's do another little timeline. Uh, this episode will be released on the 26th of August. So the bonus episode will be with you on the 2nd. And then the next official uh, in-canon 
episode for Saratix will be on Monday the 9th of September. Cool. Well, anything else to say? No, I think we're done. So uh, thanks very much for listening. And um... uh, uh, Let me just uh, do the normal thing of saying that um, we all really appreciate ev- all of our listeners and everyone who writes in and talks to us. Um, if you want to, the best way to spread the news of this is just with uh, telling people and word of mouth because we don't do any uh, promotion on this and we really don't want to start doing that. <laughs> so so um, that, that would be the best way to get the word out. Um, we really enjoy doing it and we really enjoy knowing that we have listeners. So uh, do that. Contact us at horseheretics at gmail.com and uh, yeah, tell, tell everyone. Great. Okay, we're done. See you next time. Later. Later.